episode at boagworld.com, a podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul Boag and joining me as always is Marcus. Hello Marcus. Hello Paul. We need to get some more people on this show, don't we? Yeah. Just me and you. Every week, <laughs> just me and you. I suppose it isn't, is it? I mean, this week it is because we haven't even got any Ask, ask the Expert. Uh, yeah, but that's because I wanted a bit of a change and we've got an Ask the Expert for the next week and so, you know. The hundredth yeah. episode, there'll be loads of people there. It's fine. that's true. That's true. We'll make up for it on the hundredth episode by having a hundred people on the show, except maybe five. Actually, I think it's more likely to be five because of the rugby. Yeah, I can't believe that. It's just so, well, I can believe it. But if you'd said to me, even at the time when you booked it, oh, that happens to be the Rugby World Cup final. We better not do it." Then I said, "Don't worry, England won't get to the final." And, and they have. have. But on the upside. I am at the moment talking to the pub, which we think has got a TV and is think think is set up to actually show the rugby. So um, we're thinking that rugby doesn't kick off till later, does it? What time does it kick off? Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Mm, yeah, it's going to be tight. But if you don't want to listen to the podcast, you can go and watch the rugby. That's fine. And there's beer there. So that's cool either way. So yes, don't let that put you off coming along. But also, I imagine most of the people coming along are going to be geeks and aren't going to care about rugby. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that, but we'll see. <laughs> oh dear. Oh well. I'm sure it'll be fine. <clears throat> yes. I don't um, like rugby really, but I want to watch the final. Well, yeah, I know. But there you go. So can't you kind of um, Sky Plus it or something? I haven't got Sky Plus. Oh, how, I want how very it, backwards of you. I know, I know. I've got Sky, so I'm sort of like middle of the way there. No, that's no good. <laughs> anyway, um, feel free to come along to the 100th episode. It's on the 20th of October, which is this coming Saturday. Uh, you can arrive really t- any time from 6pm onwards, um, and we, it would be great to see you. Uh, come in for a bit, go away, that's fine. We're going to put a load of money behind the bar, so there should be loads of free drinks, which is good. And, um, yeah, it should be a good evening. should be a fun evening. It's at uh, 22 Fleet Street, Ye Old Cock Tavern. This is in London. And um, if you want to sign up for it, you can do so at upcoming.yahoo.com forward slash event forward slash 224744. But um, you don't need to sign up there. It's just nice to get an idea of numbers. We're currently running at 75 people, which I think is pretty good. That is good. Paul, what time is it due to start, according to upcoming.yahoo, blah, blah, blah? Um, it says 6 o'clock in there, so it's any time oh, so... from 6 o'clock onwards. Oh, cool. So if we actually record it from, say, 6.30... Uh, we... I, yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to make it a little later than that. If we did it from 7, then we're still going to finish by 8. <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> anyway, we can make that up on the evening. We'll see who's yeah. there. We'll find out who is interested in watching the rugby, who really doesn't care. I mean, I know you want to watch it, but, you know, whatever. Well, I see. I'll probably get too nervous anyway. I'm, I'm hopeless at watching England in big, big games. So I'll, I'm happy to hide in the back room. Oh, that's fine then. So anyway, <laughs> I, I wanted to have a rant because I don't feel well, like I've, I've had a proper rant about this. Have you heard about the farce of our trip to um, uh, the Netherlands? Yes, it was very... One more... Th- I spoke to Chris about this yesterday morning. Uh, Chris went with Paul to the Netherlands. Um, and what I said to him, one more thing, and it would have been a true farce. You know, it, 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 just, it was just horrendous. So anyway, so flying out, <coughs> excuse me, flying out, um, an hour's delay. You kind of expect that. You kind of you kind of come to terms with stuff like that, don't you? Hours delay, no big deal. Admittedly, they didn't tell us there was going to be an hours delay until they'd loaded us all on the plane. And really? Sat, yeah, so we sat on the runway for an hour. So I wasn't overly amused at that. But, but okay, you know, I could deal with that. So we had our trip, all very nice, very good. Really nice people, had a really great time. So that was super. Coming back. So we we arrive at the airport. The flight's on time. Well, this is Friday we, evening, by the way. Friday <laughs> evening, yeah. We presume the flight's flights on time because they're not actually showing any information on the board at all about our flight. But let's set that aside for a minute. So, but the flight turns out to be on time. We board the flight. It's all looking good. It's going to be great. We power down the runway, ready to take off, accelerating. We swerve dramatically to the left, dramatically to the right, and then come to this screeching halt. You've never heard anything like it. If you're a nervous flyer, this is, would have been enough to stop you ever flying again. It was that <laughs> kind of experience. Um, so screeching halt, and the, the pilot then announces us, to us all that the steering has broken. My plane's broken. Honestly. I mean, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad on the upside... <laughs> yeah, this, this picture of him holding a steering wheel <laughs> in the air sorry so, don't get me wrong i'm grateful that he didn't take off because landing <laughs> with no steering wouldn't have been fun but it was a bit annoying so they had to tow us back to the to the uh, to the airport um where they then concluded that they they'd left us in the wrong place and then they had to they had to move us somewhere else so we then all unloaded from this the the uh, vehicle and i tell you this this was the exciting bit it, honestly it was survival of the fittest it was darwinian darwinianism <laughs> taken to the extreme right so um basically they had they decided that they couldn't um that the, there was no other flights they couldn't get us out that night so we had to stay over and fly out the next day but there were 45 people on the aircraft there was 33 spaces on tomorrow's flight, right? Hmm? If you didn't make that flight, you had to fly to Manchester and then get an internal flight back down to Southampton. So there was this race to get in the queue. Chris was feeling very bad about this, about leaving the old people to fly to Manchester. Yeah. He wasn't dealing with it very well. No, I I didn't deal with it very well. It's like the old (laughs) and the infirm got left behind they got horribly lost there was nobody looking after them i mean you still went on the southampton flight though didn't you yes i do feel you feel very bad now i do feel really bad about that actually yeah not that bad though eh? we we could have we had the opportunity to give up our seats but did we do it no 
Oh, you didn't. Neither of you. <laughs> Shut up. I feel so bad about that. So anyway, so come the next morning, God punished me for my selfishness um, when, we, <laughs> when we then boarded the, the morning plane. And uh, again, we were out on the runway. Everything was great. And then there was this banging from behind us about three rows back. We were quite near the back of the plane. And um, we discovered that the, that the flight attendant had got herself locked in the toilet in the back of the plane. And so the co-pilot, I think it was the co-pilot, came down and literally was shoulder charging the door, trying to get it open. In the end, he only got it open with a hammer. It was all very extreme. And I just had images of them deciding that uh, because of some EU regulation, you can't fly without a, a working toilet and we'd have it's to not. go back again. True. True, you're lucky. Well, we did. <laughs> so it was a bit of a farce and I'm bitter and twisted about it. But anyway, we really need to move on. Yes, it's, it's, talking it's, about uh, you, it's me, me, me. Me, me, me. So anyway, well, I wanted to... Uh, quick... Creative director's scale. This is, a, uh, this is a kind of joke. It's based on the lead guitarist scale. The creative it applies to creative directors as well. Creative, this is a musical scale, okay? This yeah. would apply to you. It's do, re, me, 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 me. Oh, very funny. Anyway, <laughs> <clears throat> so the 100th show coming up on the 20th of October. And I have to say I'm beginning to feel a bit guilty about it because uh, it's going to be such a cool time and I, I feel really sorry for those poor Americans that keep emailing me saying, I'm going to miss out. I'm not going to get to go. You know, and we know as a nation how hard done by the Americans are. We'll do the how... 200th one in America. How about that? Oh, cool. And, you know, they're very hard done by, aren't they, the Americans? They don't, they don't have a very good standard of living. There's not much going for them, really. <laughs> no, not so. And I felt that we needed to offer them something in way of compensation. So fortunately, the guys at Carsonified, as they're now called, have stepped in and ensured that at least one of you poor, hard-done-by Americans will have something to cheer you up for missing the 100th Boag World. And they're offering you, um, basically, they've given us a free ticket for the Futures of Web Design Conference that's happening in New York between the 6th and the 8th of November. And so uh, tickets would normally cost about $195, um, and you're going to get a great lineup of speakers, people like Jeffrey Zeldman, Andy Clark, Ryan Singer, all kinds of people. You need to check out their site, really, if you want to uh, see exactly who's speaking. Now, obviously, um, it's not going to be as good as coming to the 100th episode of Boag World, and I know that you are going to have to struggle through, but if you want your chance to win this ticket, then drop me an email um, with your name on. That's all you need. Put Future of Web Design in the subject line um, and get it to me by the 22nd of October, which is next Monday, and we'll just pick a random winner and announce it on the 99th show. This is all very confusing because we're now recording the 100th before the 99th. But anyway, so if you want more information about the conference itself, go to thefuturesofwebdesign.com. Are you going to it? No, it's in New York. Yeah, well, I thought, you know, in your new role as I go to every conference in the world. Well, they were kind enough to offer me a, a ticket, but I did feel that, that probably I was pushing my luck a bit going there. Oh, so I'm not I would have gone if I was you. Yeah, well, I couldn't persuade Chris. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, just wanted to quick, give a quick mention that I've been receiving a couple of emails complaining that... that hang, on, um, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got an idea. What's that? Uh, both of us will go. 
I fancy a, a couple of days in New York. That'd be great. I can't. It's complicated <laughs> for me. It's not straightforward as that because I'm going on a family holiday on the 10th. And I need to be in the UK on the night so I can buy the iPhone. Oh, you sad, <laughs> sad, sad person. Why don't you just buy it in, in Florida? I can't because it's locked. It, it won't work on the O2 network over here. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted a, a yeah, quick... We, re- we haven't even got to the news yet. This is not going well <laughs> as the show. Um, I've been getting the occasional email complaining that episodes of Boag World are getting cut short when people download them via iTunes. And it's rare, but it does happen. Um, now, unfortunately, this is one of iTunes' less publicized features. Um, and I just wanted to kind of quickly mention it on the show to say that if you do get that problem, so if you get partial episode, it's not because it's been uploaded as a partial episode. It means that the connection has dropped and iTunes isn't clever enough to pick it back up again. So if this does happen to you, just delete the file that iTunes has downloaded because obviously it's no good and re-download it from scratch. That almost always sorts it out the second time round. So there we are. I just needed to give that little public service announcement. So we better, we better go on to the news now. This is where... You've got to cut the news down by the sound of it, but yeah. Crikey. Anyway, quick, move on. Okay, so my first news story revolves around my love of M's. Is that M&M's? No, not M&M's. M's is in the typographic value that is used in CSS. So although I don't use them um, exclusively on every site I build, I do use them a lot. And um, they strike me as kind of the perfect compromise between the kind of pixel-perfect control you get in fixed design and the accessibility you get from and flexibility of fluid design. M's-based sites scale as the user increases text size, and they kind of basically provides this rudimentary zoom functionality. However, I'm not claiming that M's are perfect, and they're not always appropriate for kind of every situation. And they do have their own technical difficulties. And the one personal problem that I, I always struggle with with M's is working out the sizing. And this is probably because of my horrendous math skills that basically M's inherit from one another. So one M might equal 10 pixels in one part of the HTML, um, but equal something entirely different deeper down in the site because it's, um, it's inherited. And uh, okay, this, this is probably a sign of my own stupidity, but whenever I try and work this stuff out, um, my brains try to dribble out of my ears. Um, so I was quite pleased this week to discover that someone's created a little M's calculator that works out this nesting for you. What you do is you simply set the base value that would be on the body tag and then add all the nested tags that have got M values attached to them and the calculator tells you roughly what that would be the equivalent of. Check it out. It's quite hard to explain, but I guarantee that if you work regularly with M's, this will be a real time saver. Okay, next up is a great article about dealing with clients, kind of thing that you'd like, Marcus. Yes, I read this with interest. Yeah, so we all know um, what it feels like when a uh, client after client chain churn out the same old comments. You know, they make comments like, "I know, I know what I like when I see it." Yeah, yeah very useful. Best, yeah, or <laughs> um, I, I love beige. Can we have more beige in it? You know, who would ever say that? Come on, <laughs> we're not beige, maybe, but you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So the list kind of goes on and on. Uh, these kinds of questions can be horribly frustrating, and despite the fact that you hear them time and time again, they kind of leave you floundering as how to respond. So this article that I found 
basically lists 10 of those kinds of comments made by clients and proposes ways to respond to them. Now, obviously, you kind of need to respond to these questions in a way that suits you. However, it's kind of still interesting to see what other people suggest and how they go about answering them. Um, so check it out um, and, uh, yeah, see see what you think of these uh, these responses. And if you disagree with how they've responded in that article, then uh, pop a comment in the um, in the show notes and you can, uh, yeah, say how you would answer them. Uh, oh, by the way, the show notes are available at boagworld.com forward slash podcast and select show 98. Next up, the return of the downloadable font. Sounds like a really bad sci-fi B-movie, doesn't it? Some call it the holy... A boring, yeah. <laughs> boring B-movie. Carry on. Okay. I find typography interesting. Well, yeah, but not, that, not, a, not a kind of film interesting level, is it? No. Does it sound more dramatic if I refer to downloadable fonts as the holy grail of web typography? No. Vaguely. But yeah, go on then. Okay. <laughs> So some people think of it as this, you know, the idea of having downloadable fonts. You can pick whatever font you want. Some people get very excited about it. Others believe that if we had that option, it would just be used and abused and would have, you know, horrendous script fonts everywhere. However, um, what I don't think anybody will deny is that that is something that has been asked for again and again. The ability to define whatever fonts you want to. So the idea has actually been around since '98. But different, um, but it was implemented differently by different browser manufacturers that meant that it never really gained traction. However, according to a number of websites that I've read recently, inc- including one by Robert Nyman, um, it looks like it's back on the cards. Both Safari and Opera have now implemented a standards-based solution to the problem using something called at font face, which is certainly good news. Um, Problem is, until IE and Firefox follow suit, there's uh, there's still going to be this whole problem that there's not enough browser support for it. So we're going to have to wait and see on that one. But it's interesting to see that it's kind of floating around again. Okay, last story of the day um, relates to personas. And I feel like I've been talking about user personas a lot recently. Um, and there's certainly a tool that I've been using for a long time. Um, and with good reason. I find them incredibly useful to kind of focus uh, the designer and the client on what who they're developing for and what really, you know, who they should be concentrating on and who they should be thinking about. And they help to define functionality and content. They help to define the tone of what you're writing and obviously the design as well. However, although um, I've done a kind of introduction to personas in the past on the show, I've kind of avoided going into too much depth because it's quite hard to explain this kind of stuff on a podcast. Developing a really good persona is a skill, and to be honest, I'm far from an expert in the area. However, if you do want to learn more about personas, then you might want to consider a new article I came across this week called The Ten Steps to Personas. It's a relatively short article, but it outlines some of the more advanced techniques. Now, I should warn you, Marcus, before you go and read this, it does have long and complicated words. (laughs) And I don't want you to... Rich coming from you. (laughs) And I don't want you to get confused by it. It's quite a heavy duty. However, I did want to mention it because it is kind of quite useful. And if all else fails, Marcus, it does have a very useful little diagram outlining the steps. Pictures. Yes, pretty pictures. So there we go. That's, That's the news for today. Let's hurtle on 
into Marcus's segment of the show. Now, Marcus, I realised because we, we were in such a rush at the beginning of the show, I forgot to ask you what you're doing your bit of the show on. What are you covering today? Special surprise, isn't it? I'm going to, it's kind of short and hopefully sweet section this week uh, about when to make a project a lost leader. Ooh. Yeah, well, you know, if if you think about it, we quite often do this. We probably do it more than we think we probably should. But there there are many, you know, winning winning work or getting a project off the ground usually takes a bit of kind of back and forth and a bit of stretching of scope and, and... budget and things like that so i thought i might talk about it because there, there's it. there's a particular project that we've we've done done exactly this on recently and and for very good reason but i'll come on to that so even after going on at length in this podcast about making sure that contracts are in place tasks are recorded in detail requirement consultations are paid for and project effort project management effort is not underestimated and this is all to avoid undercharging Sometimes there are occasions when you should take a hit and do a project as a loss leader. The two main benefits of this being you may get future profits through repeat work and you're also marketing the company by associating yourself with a good project or a big company. That's harder to measure whether it's been successful, but it's very much a reason why people do this. So I've kind of got three 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 reasons why you might want to make a project a loss leader. First one multinational company comes knocking on your door. Generally speaking, I would try to avoid cutting costs if a huge brand name asks you to pitch for work. Firstly, because I doubt that budget's much of an issue for them. Uh, And secondly, you don't want to label yourself as cheap for two reasons. Uh, Obviously, if if you do do the initial project cheaply, then they'll expect all all of the projects to be cheap. And also, you might lose the work because you're cheap. That does happen sometimes. Yeah undercharge themselves and be seen as kind of like the cheap options. I don't want that. But you may be pitching against a lot of other agencies and you know what the allocated budget is, which happens to be lower than you you would like to charge for the work. In this case, you may want to lower your quote to around the budget mark to give yourself a chance of winning that big-name client. The next one, which I mentioned um, uh, at the start of this, is the promise of future riches. I would avoid any client that says, do this job on the cheap for me and there'll be loads more in the future for you because uh, chances are they won't be. But if you kind of reach that conclusion on your own, if we do this, this particular project, uh, project for the budget they're saying they've got, but it, you know, they've got loads of different companies, online companies, and they're always doing more and more work and you know, we, we could be seen as their saver, if you like. If you reach that conclusion on your own, then, then you may, want, may well want to go for that uh, initial hit, if you like, because repeat work is far more profitable and reliable than having to win new clients all the time. Basically, as with all these examples, uh, you need to try and limit how much you're discounting, obviously, and be very, aware, be very aware of what you're giving away. A, so you can weigh up what the risks are, and B, be able to measure whether the risk, risk was worth it in the end. But that kind of goes with anything like this. Final one, final reason for maybe going for this, and this is what we've done recently, is if you've got a new toy. And what I mean by that is if you've got a new new application or piece of software, but you've got nothing but a kind of dummy site to demo to people. Uh, we've just done quite a major upgrade of our CMS and with no real client associated with it. So offering a, offering a discount to a client to implement it is almost certainly worth it in that case because then you've got a real version. There's nothing more powerful as a sales tool than a real case study demonstrating a product or service. So until you get a real example, it's in your interest to try and make one happen. 
it's also fair on the client to reduce the price in this instance because it's likely that there's going to be bug fixing, um, you know, problems you weren't, you couldn't envisage at the start of the project. So it's likely that it's going to drag out longer than than the project than you originally expected. So some kind of discount related to that is fair on the client. I think in that case, so that's that's kind of it really. You're it's when when something's really in your interest to do it, and I, th- I don't think there's any formula to it. You've just got to kind of take a feeling that sometimes it is worth um, knocking some price off whatever you're doing. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. It. Thank you very much, Marcus. Bugrod.com. So I, I'm feeling a bit lazy, to be perfectly honest with you. When it's not lazy, I'm feeling a bit stressed at the moment because uh, I've got a, a deadline for this book that um, that I'm writing. And I've got to do this week's show. I've got mm. to do the hundredth one, which has been moved forward because of our strange recording situation. And then we've got the 99th to record at the beginning of next week. So I'm like, ah, too much going on. <laughs> so um, what I've done is I've decided to steal from the book again this week. I've done this a couple of times before and, and cover a section that I'm going to be covering in the book. So th- what I want to talk about is the kind of ongoing role of a website manager. And I think... Uh, this is actually quite a big problem within a lot of companies that um, they, the, a lot of organizations underestimate the enormity of the job faced by the, whoever's running the website. On an, um, and they, they fail to grasp that there's a kind of ongoing commitment there. And I think, to be honest, that this lack of understanding probably explains why it's um, a fairly unrecognized position, that of website manager. Um, and... Although the website's considered an important asset, nobody really thinks about who's going to run it on the you know ongoing basis. So anyway, what I want to do is look at what I feel the role of a website manager should be, and I think there are there are three, there are a lot of things relating to the the role, but three kind of ongoing uh, things that justify somebody being assigned to a website manager, not just in the initial build, but on an ongoing basis. And those three things are evaluating the site's objectives, refining the site, and then promoting the site. So what do I mean by evaluating the site's objectives? Well, a website manager should be constantly evaluating the objectives of the website and asking if changes need to be made to the overall kind of vision and direction of the site. This kind of assessment uh, does not need to occur kind of on a daily basis, but should be looked at, I don't know, once every six months, something like that. And when you sit down and kind of review where you're at with the website and what's going, you need to consider um, a number of questions. And here's some I kind of picked at random. Um, Have the underlying objectives of the website changed? So where previously maybe it was uh, an e-commerce site, you know, you're now more service-based and so it's more of a kind of call to action type site you know things like that when you've got a fundamental shift like that you need to be aware of that how is the site performing against the success criteria that you laid down and do those criteria actually need to be changed in any way so that's another good question to ask you know regularly Um, what is the competition doing and how are you performing against them and how has your target audience changed and kind of what response responses are you getting from them in regards to the site so are the target audience being positive about the site are you getting criticism that kind of thing so that's what i mean by evaluating site objectives the second thing that i mentioned was refining the site so kind of on a more practical level the website manager needs to also be refining the site in response to changes to those objectives 
So if the cr- success criteria of your site are not being met, then you need to um, take steps to make sure that they are met, if that makes sense. Yep. Or that you kind of redefine the success criteria if they were unreasonable before. And equally, if the competition is luring away visitors from your site, then you need to alter it to encourage them back. So there's a kind of continual tweaking of the site that needs to be going on on an ongoing basis. And this kind of manifests itself in three different ways. Um, changes to the front end of interface of the website. So if users are, are complaining about legibility or confusing navigation or whatever, then changes to the interface. The second one is um, the addition, deletion, or editing of written content, so changing the content of your site. And the third one is um, whether you introduce new functionality. So on an ongoing basis, you should be kind of tweaking and changing and evolving the site. So for example, if you're a luxury holiday booking service, you might want to um, respond to an increased competition in the sector by adding something like a flight price comparison tool where you can see the prices on your site compared to those on other people's. Um, so that would be like new functionality. Um, a tool like this is very appealing to some users and will draw them away from the competition. Equally, you might want to look at adding regular reviews um, of your existing de- destinations in order to encourage people to keep coming back to the site. So that would be new content being added to the site. Finally, you might refine the design based on user feedback to make it easier to navigate and improve legibility. So this would be a change to the design, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So responding to user feedback is often the best way of refining your site, which is why kind of ongoing usability testing, polling and analysis of site stats is so important. So that kind of that's kind of refining the site. And the final area I mentioned was site promotion. Um, now, although it's possible to get online marketing specialists to help you promote your website, I've seen you know a lot of organisations just fail to associate budget with this task, and as a result, it's kind of almost always the website manager that picks up the promotion of the site. So, site promotion needs to be a kind of a, very much a definite, ongoing commitment that's done week in and week out. Um, the number of visitors coming to your site will slowly decline if you don't actively promote it. Um, You can promote a website in a number of different ways, and really that's a kind of topic for another time. But just to quickly mention um, them, there's kind of offline promotion, which includes putting URLs on letterheads, business cards, signage, phone systems, marketing collateral, that kind of thing. There's email marketing, which, um, you know, you can drive traffic to your site obviously by doing email campaigns and and talking to existing clients and maybe have gone dormant or whatever there's uh, search mechanisms um so promoting yourself and getting good placement on google and um, but it would also include things like pay-per-click campaigns social networking tools that kind of stuff and then finally there's guerrilla marketing which is a kind of catch-all for all the low-cost marketing methods which include things like forum seeding viral marketing blogging even podcasting for example I mean, to be honest, those are huge areas that we could have massive discussions on. But I think the key is that site promotion is really important and requires more than lip service. It needs a dedicated resource, either internally or externally, on an ongoing basis. So um, it's important to decide early in the process who's going to be responsible for all of this work, really, whether it's site promotion, refining your site, or evaluating your site objectives. 
So there you go. I think that's my bit for the day. Okay, so as Marcus said earlier in the show, we do not have an expert this week. Um, and that's because we haven't done a review in a while. Um, hmm. And there's kind of there's one question that I always get asked again and again. And um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pick a random question or a random person that's asked this question and um, just play it back to you. Hi, Paul and Marcus. My name's Zeke. Love the podcast. I'm recording this question from Sunny Vanuatu in the South Pacific in response to the podcast called Trends and Two Fat Ladies, where Paul has a good old rant over the listeners not getting off our collective fat asses, as he says, and sending in voice questions. Well, Paul, here's mine. I'm starting off as a web developer, and as much as I love the internet and everything it has to offer, sometimes there's just no substitute for a good reference book. I would like to know what books you recommend as a must-read or must-have for all people into web development or web design. I look forward to hearing your response. So there we go. Lives in the South Pacific, eh? That sounds nice. How awful. Yes, must be very (laughs) stressful for him. No, but, uh, I mean, that's a common question I get again and again. What books would you recommend? And actually, a while back, I put together um, a blog post of of my book recommendations, and I do update that blog post on a fairly regular basis. But I thought I'd take a snapshot in time as to what's in there at the moment, um, and uh, we'll have a quick look through those. There's also an RSS feed that you can subscribe to um, of my book list. So, but occasionally that does include things that aren't web design related as well. So, yeah, yeah, be aware of that. Okay, so what have I got in my list? Well, let's start with the absolute basics. You're starting out in web design. Um, where do you start? Well, probably the best book is Building Your Own Website the Right Way Using HTML and CSS, which I've mentioned before on the show a long time ago. It's a book by Ian Lloyd of Accessify.com, and it's perfect for those starting out in web design. It literally teaches you uh, how to build a website from scratch. No previous knowledge required whatsoever. My wife used it, and she managed to build a website. So that would be number one recommendation. Um, There are a couple of others that I feel... Um, or oh, there's one other that kind of gives a flavor of design and I, I quite, I think he's quite good from a design perspective and that's, um, the Zen of CSS design. And it's basically a series of uh, case studies based on those found in CSS Zen gardens. Um, and it, it's kind of ideal for developers or people just starting out in design that want to improve their design skills. So it's kind of a mix of CSS tips and design. So once you kind of got a bit of a handle on CSS um, and kind of know the basics, then obviously the definitive next book is um, CSS Mastery, uh, the Advanced Web Standards Solutions, which is Andy Budd's book. Um, And it's kind of perfect if you've got beyond the basics and you're trying to kind of deepen your knowledge a little bit. Um, it's a brilliant book and it has many of those kind of slap your forehead moments and wonder why you never thought of doing it that way, which is always a sign of a good book. Now, maybe once you um, get beyond CSS and maybe you want to start looking at JavaScript, there's a couple of options that I want to recommend. If you're a designer, then go for Dom Scripting, which is Jeremy Keith's book. Um, And uh, it's a great book that really kind of opens your mind to the potential of JavaScript. And it's written with a uh, designer in mind, especially those that maybe have shied away from JavaScript a little bit in the past. So there's that one. If, however, you're more of a developer and you want something a bit more hardcore, then check out DHTML Utopia, Modern Web Design Using JavaScript in the DOM. Don't be put off by the DHTML bit. 
and that's a book by um, Stuart Langridge, and uh, it it kind of approaches DOM scripting from a bit more of a developer's point of view. Okay, what else have we got? If you have come from a tables-based background and kind of are still struggling with this whole CSS thing, then obviously Zeldman's book, Designing with Web Standards, is the definitive book to kind of get you thinking about standards. Um, what I like about it is not only does it cover the, the how to go about learning standards, but it also gives you the history of web design and explains you know why we ended up designing with tables and why that's no longer a good idea. So it's a really good one, perhaps for organizations that are looking to justify the switch, if that makes sense. Um, another one that's worth recommending, um, very similar in some ways to Andy's book, CSS Mastery, is Web Standard Solutions by Dan Cederholm. Um Check that out, a very good book as well. But then I've got a couple of books that may be a little bit beyond um, web design, but I think are very good web uh, books nonetheless that you might want to consider as a busy web designer. One of them is Getting Things Done that I've talked about before, um, which is about how to be more efficient in your life and in your work and that kind of thing. Um, very good book just for organizing yourself. Laws of Simplicity. Again, it's not really about web design, but um, is about design and it's about simplicity in general in life in work and design and everything but I find it found it very inspirational in improving my approach to design and user interface and that kind of stuff so laws of simplicity is worth checking out too uh, if you want to get into Ajax then check out bulletproof Ajax which is the kind of sequel to Jeremy Keith's Dom scripting book um, so you probably want to have read Dom scripting before you read bulletproof Ajax um, Don't Make Me Think, the classic usability book. If you're looking to learn anything about usability, then I would personally recommend Don't Make Me Think, which is Steve Krug's book on the subject. However, also, there is Prioritizing Web Usability by Jacob Nielsen, um, which, to be honest, is a little bit full of his own self-importance, but um, has some, some really good resources in there as well, and kind of real-life examples, which is already good. Don't Make Me Think is... Um, is a bit more kind of theoretical while prioritizing web usability is a little bit more case study orientated. Um, talking of non-web design books, and another book that I find very interesting, which I've just finished, is called The Tipping Point. And again, it's, it's not about web design, but is a, a really good read. So it talks about the concepts behind ideas and products going viral. You know, how does a product or a trend suddenly spread like wildfire? What makes that happen? So it talks about how small changes have a big impact. And it's kind of, I think, is invaluable for web designers because it shows how reaching the right target audience and presenting information in the right way can have a profound impact on the success of your website. So check that one out. And then last but not least is Cameron Mole's book on mobile web design. Uh, we've talked about that recently in the show, so I won't really say any more about it. But if you want to get into mobile web design, then check that one out. So there you go. There's a whole plethora of books. And if you go to the show notes at barrackworld.com forward slash podcast, select show 98 and you will be able to find a link to my book recommendations blog and then even buy them from there from Amazon. So there you go. OK, I think that about wraps up today's show. Does it not, Marcus? I think it does. Do you want so a have joke? You, you got a joke? Yeah, I got a little joke. Thanks to Ian as ever. A businessman gets on a plane. Sitting next to him is an elegant woman wearing the largest diamond ring he's ever seen, so he asks her about it. This is the Klopman diamond, she says. 
It is beautiful, but it's like the Hope Diamond. There's a terrible curse that goes with it. What's the curse? The man asks. Mr. Klopman, she replies. <laughs> uh, that's quite good one. Quite like that one. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. So there we go. That's the show. And I guess all that's left to say is see you all Saturday. Goodbye. <laughs>